One Week Season. Inner Circle fam, JM to win here. Welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Inner Circle podcast. Really exciting podcast tonight, today. Whenever you're listening to this, we are going to be talking about, actually, I'll say like this. Last week, we went through the bubble build process or my bubble build process to give you a sense of what it can look like to build in a bubble and then come out of that bubble and see what else is being talked about and what else is being said and and really deeper into the week get a sense of what else, what's popular right and to see oh wow i'm on these plays that are that are not popular and i don't have to think about strategy beyond that because i've already built in a bubble and now i can just put together good quality rosters along the lines of what we talk about all the time of what it means to put together good quality rosters and i talked last week that we might do a part 2 on the bubble building process this week. But something came up, which is that Matthew Petrick, who if I'm correct on this, Matthew can let me know if I'm correct on this in a little bit. I think he's been a, a longtime subscriber of OWS. In fact, if I recall correctly, he submitted questions over the years to the OWS chat pod and to Inner Circle. Uh, but he had a quarter of a million dollar hit this last weekend playing single entry and three entry max and basically using a lot of the things that we talk about in Inner Circle and on the site. And so we're going to break down his roster from a roster construction standpoint and tie that into a lot of the other things that we've talked about and also some of the things that you guys can apply directly to your play. And one of the cool things about that is we talk about Inner Circle being a replacement for one-on-one -on -one coaching. And part of the reason we wanted to try to roll things out in this way is one-on-one -on -one coaching is extremely expensive. And most DFS coaches charge 100 to 125 bucks an hour, some of them even more than that. Whereas with Inner Circle, you can kind of pay a fraction of that. And like I said, at the start of the year, if we were doing, if you and I were doing one-on-one -on -one coaching, what we would probably do is have a segment together on Tuesday where we would talk about fundamentals of DFS play. And then we would have a segment on Saturday where you and I would sit down and talk through your roster and why you're putting certain things on your roster. And I could be that voice in your ear, basically saying, Hey, like, what about this angle? Or why are you putting things together this way? And so on and so forth. And so we set up inner circle to obviously there's not that one-on-one -on -one attention, but set it up in a classroom style manner where we can talk about the DFS fundamentals on Tuesday and then talk about the slate strategy on Saturday, which is what Xandamir and Hilo cover on Saturdays. So tonight we're going to, Matthew's going to come up and he's going to talk about his roster a little bit. He's got to be out of here in about 20 minutes to put his kids to bed. And then uh, we're going to break down some of that more deeply and then talk about some of the things that, again, I always talk about how everybody's mind works differently as a DFS player. So we'll talk about how we can each individually apply some of these things and also some other roster construction techniques and processes on top of that. Before we dive into that, though, I want to greet any of you who are listening to this on Discord or yeah, on Discord for the first time or who are listening to this on the One Week Season podcast feed. That kind of gives you a little bit of a background of what we're doing with Inner Circle. Again, if you're listening to this, we made it free for one week 
And in addition to the, we're, we're basically doing a rest of season discount. It's on the missions page uh, on the OWS homepage. You can find it in the menu at the top. Um, so the, we wanted to give you guys a taste of what inner circle is all about in case you wanted to take that rest of season discount and take advantage of what we're providing in here. Um, and then also, you know, just that extra chance to get that training and kind of deeper understanding of, of DFS strategy. And one of the things that I think about is there's two ways to learn this stuff, right? One way is to learn it through trial and error, which is extraordinarily expensive. And the other way to learn it is to learn it from the people who have already learned it. I talked about this in the Angles podcast this last week, but I'll hit on it really briefly again. And that is just the importance of being willing to learn new things and ask questions. One of the things I talked about was in 2014 when I had first started playing seriously and I'd already had two live final, went two qualifier wins to live finals on Draft Street and had a lot of success on Draft Street. Draft Street was bought by DraftKings. And the first thing I did was I hit up STL cards in his PMs on Roto-Grinders. I hit up Dinkmeyer in his PMs on Roto-Grinders. I hit up four or five other guys in their PMs on Roto-Grinders to pick their brains. Okay, what are the strategy differences between Draft Street and DraftKings? These are also guys that had already hit up before that in the forums on Roto-Grinders, in their PMs, on Twitter, asking them questions, picking their brains, trying to learn from them. That was how I got to know Notorious at first, right? Like eventually we became co-workers but before that, it was me bouncing questions off of him and trying to learn more about DFS and the value in recognizing that even if you know a lot, there are people who know things you don't know and you can incorporate those into your play. That's so extraordinarily important, really in all areas of life, of, of being willing to constantly learn new things and accumulate new knowledge because that's how we continue to charge towards success. One of the really cool things about what we've been able to build through OWS and Inner Circle is I look at it like this. As you learn something and become better and better at it, you kind of start from a small point. And then your understanding gets broader and broader and broader. You might have all these terms and all these different ways you look at things. And then you start finding ways to take those, that broader knowledge, that broader information, all those terms, and you start condensing them. And so it kind of is like a diamond shape where you start at a fine point where you know very little, and then you stretch way out to the, the far points on the side, and then you start closing in again to where you can define all of these concepts that are basically the roots, right, into this finer point that would be like the tree that's growing from the roots. And so three of those tenets that we talk about all the time are playing for first place building for a roster that can score 200 plus points and playing fearlessly. And so it was really interesting that Matthew, after his, his huge win this last weekend on Twitter, he was talking about how he's been building this year, basically in his mind, just hammering those three points. And he was talking about how without thinking about those three things, he wouldn't have built his rosters this last weekend the way he built them. And so it's really cool to dive into specific examples of what that actually looks like uh, and to you know hear from somebody who has had a big win with that type of approach. So Matthew, if you're in here, go ahead and hit the uh, raised hand on the bottom of your screen. Um, and what I'm going to have Matthew come up and talk about is a couple of things. One is 
Oh, invite sent. There we go. Okay. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, one of the things I want to talk to him about is the idea of building fearlessly and what that looked like for him. And I'm going to go through his roster really quickly. Uh, and then the other thing I want to talk about is, is the process he went through to get to this build, because it's important to understand not just what a roster looks like at the end, but what the steps looked like to get there. So Matthew finished first and second place uh, in the power sweep and then first place in the double spy, I think it was. Uh, and basically the, the same roster, right? He finished first, second place. And it was uh, Carson Wentz, the main roster they used in the single entry was Carson Wentz, Jonathan Taylor, and Michael Pittman, which was something we talked about a lot last week, the overstack of the Colts, plus A.J. Brown. But what's more important than the fact that we talked about that specific overstack is the idea of finding a game to build around and building around a very clear scenario where you can pick up a bunch of points from that game. Uh, Michael Carter was on that roster. Again, another guy that we talked about a lot last week. He was on both of my builds last week. Chris Godwin, Dan Arnold, Austin Eckler, and the Falcons defense. And then the swap on roster number two was Jonathan Taylor down to Deontay Johnson. Excellent way to play that to say, okay, I've got the overstack on one and then I'll just do the Wentz and Pittman stack on the other. Uh, and that allowed him to go up to the Bills defense and basically the same score between the two rosters and managed, managed to pull that first and second place finish. So Matthew, first off, huge congrats on uh, kind of a life-changing win um, did I have that right? You've been on OWS since what the beginning or close to the beginning. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and I hope you guys can hear me. I've been on with OWS since the beginning and I used to read your, uh, edge over on Roto grinders, um, probably since the beginning as well. Um, and I, I even used to try to plug my own blog, uh, in your comment section. And I, I think I got uh, called out for that once so it was my official apology <laughs> that's kind of the I, I i used to do that to like on notorious's articles as i would if i'd find a stat that kind of disagreed with what he said i'd like put that in there and then and then as you start writing the articles you realize how annoying it is when somebody like contradicts you in the in the comments but yeah that was my starting point was that and i and i remember it because i your, is your last name why don't you pronounce it for me <laughs> uh i pronounce it Petrich and I, I'm a teacher and I tell my students, um, you know, it, it's like pet and rich. I don't have a pet and I'm not rich. Uh, <laughs> but I obviously have to change. That. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think I butchered that on the uh, chat pod before as well. But yeah, and that's what, another thing too is like the the continued learning, right? Like you're in inner circle. You've been asking questions for years. You've been reading this stuff, and and you talked on discord about your you know like growth of bankroll like and and moving up in buy-in levels from really hits that were like smaller hits but uh, i think that's a really cool thing for people to see too is that progression and that you know i used to think i used to think well man if i took away these 15 slates or these 18 slates i would actually be a losing dfs player and then you realize oh but that's what dfs is it's like you, you just need a handful of hits and you keep playing the right way and putting yourself in position for those. And then those big hits come. And so you've kind of seen that progression yourself. And then you get this monster hit that kind of changes everything. And so, um, so yeah, the, I think what's interesting is a couple of things. One, putting Godwin on the roster, which is something we've talked about, right? Like a lot of people think, oh, well, Godwin's going to be so chalky. I have to move away from him. But it seems like your thought was, well, I have this unique build, right? I have the Colts overstack. I have Michael Carter 
I'm doing enough different already. I don't have to worry about strategy from there. Was that, and, and I don't have a Swift on this roster either. Was that kind of the thinking in terms of keeping Godwin on this roster um, at such high ownership? Yeah. And, you know, he was one of the first players um, that I d- identified at the beginning of the week. And yeah, I was able to get off of, of Swift, who was also someone who I had identified. Um, but I, I just kept liking, you know, Chris Godwin. And, and I, I thought to myself, you know, this is such a, a different roster and especially putting Michael Carter on there. Um, and then varying the defense, um, you know, I thought, well, I can I can afford um, to put Godwin on there. In fact, on the second place roster, I had Cortland Sutton in because I didn't want to have Godwin on every roster. Um, and when I got to the afternoon games, I switched and I put Godwin in for Sutton uh, because I, I realized, you know, I could probably eat the chalk and and still have it my lineup was still unique. I had enough points to get to, to get up there. So it was a second place lineup. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's brilliant thinking. And that was kind of, I had a similar setup where my, my roster that had Bridgewater and Sutton and, um, and McLaurin, which is the other stack that we kind of talked about last week. It, it, the early games were, I had Swift on it. So I ate the dud there, but then I had, uh, Pittman, AJ Brown, and Michael Carter, which ended up being the three highest scoring players on the entire slate. And so I kind of knew like, okay, I'm in excellent shape because I've got these three huge scores, but I only had four guys in play, right? So what I knew there was I have to stick to my Bridgewater, McLaurin, Sutton stack and recognize that if it hits, basically if it hits, all it took was McLaurin having a big game. If McLaurin has a big game, that sends that game environment upward. And it was like, if it hits, I already have these three huge scores and now I'm pretty much in in first place. Like I've got first place, I've got a clear path to first place already. And you kind of had the opposite where it was like, oh, I've I've got enough of the big scores taken care of. I can stick with Godwin. And that's such a sharp move. And I think that that, that actually is part of the fearlessness because you mentioned those three things, right? The playing for first and the targeting 200 points and the fearlessness. And I think that for me, uh, the things that I see on the on this roster is a that switch to Godwin. It, it's funny to say fearless because you switch to the super chalky play. But a lot of people, the mindset is like, man, if I switch and I'm wrong, I'm going to be kicking myself. Whereas you thought in the positive and you were like, OK, if I switch, this is what's likeliest to hit. And if I switch and I'm right, then I've got a clearer shot at first place. And then the other fearless uh, element to me, obviously Michael Carter was a tough one to pull the trigger on, but you got a nice little echo chamber with, you know, the site kind of being behind that play. Uh, but the other one is, is not being on Swift. And I think it's cool because last week we talked about thinking a lot less about fading players. Most people think I'm fading DeAndre Swift. What story does that tell? And what we were saying is, Focus more on who you're playing. If you're targeting a 200 plus point score, then it matters less who you're not playing because you're still playing guys that you think can get you that 200 plus point score. So was that kind of like a pain point for you to look at these rosters and be like, oh my God, I don't have DeAndre Swift. Is this going to be okay? Or or what else was there kind of throughout the day on Saturday or Sunday morning where you were like, can I roll forward with this roster this week? Yeah, I had, so my, my third entry, I had, it was a bill stack and I had Swift on it. Um, so I, I sort of covered it there, but um, I, you know, I had built that, that Indianapolis stack 
with a pretty clear shot at, I think the four together cost about 25K. And it was pretty clear to me that they could score 100 uh, points. And that was that was enough. You know, that's my 4X and in four positions. And then I have enough, um, you know, these guys who could go for 30 um, in my lineup. So I said, well, you know, it differentiates me, but I wasn't really thinking of that because I liked Carter so much. Um, I played him last week, actually. Adam Levitan got me on him. He had a tweet about Coleman being out. And so I played him last week and I just, it, it was such a clear spot. I didn't expect the Jets to win. Um, but, you know, I knew he'd get the targets. Uh, and so with only those those two running back spots, I said, well, I'll play Taylor. Um, you know, and then I, I think I had the extra money on a couple rosters to get up from Swift to Eckler. I actually liked the uh, Eckler play a little better um, just from a scoring team being able to score more points. Um, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I, I, you know, one of the things we saw too is I believe Swift played a little over 70% of the snaps, which is directly in line with what he's been doing. And it's something that we've talked about before that there's a tendency for people to think, okay, this guy's out. So this guy's role changes dramatically. And oftentimes that's not the case. I already had Swift on both my rosters. And when the news came out, it was like, okay, well, I'm doing enough different. I already like this play. I'm sticking with it. But in retrospect, I should have actually thought through it a little bit more to say, you know, because again, Eckler's another guy that we talked about last week and to say, you know, okay, well, you know, I had Bill's defense, Bengals defense on my two. And I talked a lot about the Colts defense, the Saints defense last week, which I had, you know, clearly I can get down there and it frees up an extra K in salary, 800 in salary, whatever. And you can get up to Eckler on that build. And I kind of stuck with the Swift thing and didn't even reconsider saying, okay, his, his, he doesn't change the play, but now his ownership doubles. Do I want to do anything differently? And that's another thing that I could have done better this last week. And I think that it's something really sharp in your, way to look at things. And it's, it's obviously you're not like a, a full on bubble builder, right? Because you're listening to stuff on here throughout the week, reading stuff on here throughout the week, but that bubble type mindset to be able to say, well, I like Eckler more than Swift and everybody else isn't necessarily looking at things that way, but that's not like that didn't sway you. Was there anything else that was kind of hard to settle down with on, on this roster? And then um, after you talk about that, go ahead and talk through, cause I know you, you don't have too much time, but go ahead and talk through, what you what point in the week you built these rosters and what point they were kind of finalized? Sure. Um, yeah, in terms of things I had to kind of let go of in that in that play play fearlessly mindset. Um, last week I played Daryl Henderson on I think on all my lineups, uh, and I put him in there because I had to you know quote unquote account for the Rams. Um, and so this week, you know, part of that playing fearlessly was, you know what, I'm not going to worry about the Rams. I've got my my plays. They don't happen to be on the Rams. Um, I'm not going to worry about it. And then another one was I was really high on on Khalil Herbert and uh, Debo Samuel. And I kept kind of going back and forth between Carter and Herbert, putting, uh, you know, Debo in there and. So finally, I got off of that um, and settled on what I had. You know, should have played 
Debo Samuel, but hey, that's a that's another story. But I really liked, you know, guys like Jamar uh, Jamar Chase um, in his spot. Um, let's see, uh, Deontay. I guess Deontay Johnson just sort of fit from a salary perspective, and he had such a good floor. Um, and I think the roster I used him on um, already had upside, so I was able to kind of slot him in as a floor play. And yeah, it was just a, a it all just all just you know came together. And I think I knew for about an hour before I told my wife because again we were putting our our kid to sleep and waited till after that. And um, it was just really hard containing that for an hour. I and I totally forgot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the um, the point in the week when you were building it, like was it? It's like sounds like you built it throughout the week. And so at what point I'll say it like this, I think that a lot of people, a roster is just something they do, right? They're not thinking deeply about it. And you're talking about these different moving parts on this roster. And that sounds a lot like the way I used to build and the way I'm getting back to building. I'm talking about, you know, as we've added more content providers on the site, it's allowed me to kind of shift away from covering everything to actually focusing on what I do best as a player, which this last week I only built two rosters. It was so fun and so freeing. And I think I'll do that again this next week, but get back to that and also, you know, get back to then providing content around that. And there's an element of saying, okay, here's, an initial roster. Now here's different pieces that can go on it. Here's other ways I could do this and not getting closer and closer to what everybody else is doing, but trying to say, how can I kind of maneuver this puzzle so that I maximize my upside um, kind of across the board. And so, yeah, what, like at what point did you start messing around with this, these particular builds? Cause it's kind of the same roster. At what point did you start messing around with these particular builds and when did you kind of settle on, okay, this is what I'm rolling forward with. And were there any kind of interesting points from point A to point B, as far as messing around with with this build. Yeah. Um, so I, I write notes in the collective every every almost every week as much as I can, and I never had a section kind of in there for initial thoughts. Uh, and I put that in in my collective this year, so I could get my own thoughts um, out there before I read anything, before I listened to anything. And, you know, I had written, I, I, just, I went back and I reread my thoughts on the Indianapolis, Tennessee game. And um, it was just, you know, I, so I got on that right away and I stayed with that um, the whole week. And the, my initial thoughts, I think I had a question in there, like, you know, is this enough to, to win a tournament? And, and so I kept thinking about that the whole week. Um, I got on that pretty early. Carter, I was on last week. Uh, and I knew I wanted to play him again. Um, and then I, it, it was hard making the decision to get off of, uh, you know, plays like Swift. Um, Anderson was easy because I, that was my mistake from the week before. Um, but, you know, I, I listened to the Inner Circle podcast last week. And like you said, you know, I went through it with my phone open or something and kind of building lineups along with you. And when you started talking about the similar plays that I was on I was just like, Oh my gosh, you know, you know, I, I might as well just go with this and, and kind of stick with this. Um, and then those other plays, the, the, the floating plays kind of came in throughout the week. Uh, but the core was what I, I think I, I said it in Twitter was just seemed to come together um, pretty easily. 
uh, and especially that that play of of Taylor at running back um, came together early, and that's probably why I didn't go go with Swift. Um, I, I wanted to play Taylor. Were you kind of tinkering right up to lock, or or was it like by Saturday night, Friday night, you kind of knew that that's what you were set on? Uh, I was, you know, I was maybe, I, I mean, I can't fully remember, but I, I was reading the Oracle, uh, the scroll on Saturday. Um, I was, I was staying with my in-laws too, my wife's family. I didn't have as much time to kind of sit down, um, but we were watching the Notre Dame game and I, I was reading through the scroll and the, everything I was sort of bouncing my, my ideas off of that. And um, I'm sure I tinkered a little bit. I think the the Falcons lineup, the Falcons defense came into play there. Um, I think I ended up getting Eckler and the Falcons and settling on that probably on Saturday night. Um, heard all the news on Sunday and, you know, did not change anything, but I thought about, you know, some of the you know, uh, Falcons situation and Swift. Um, but again, I saw the clear path to 200 points and I, and I didn't want to get off of that. So. Man, that's so awesome. This is actually, this is one of my favorite, um, favorite conversations that we've had just because the opportunity to kind of bring you up here. And I think one of the things that I've realized and I, and I, I don't want to hold you on much longer, but the, it's one of the things that's been really cool is adding Roto Maven to kind of help run the show and Dustin doing so much help run the show and uh, Lex and Alec and all the other guys who help so much with the site. It's also helped me to get, and, and Todd's helped with this a lot too, helped me get feedback about, you know, what, what the OWS community really is. And, you know, Xanomir really pushed for the discord and obviously keeps it so lively. And, and it's helped me to recognize how sharp the OWS community is from Knowles fan to, you know, the, the guys we brought on like Mike and Poppy to write the NFL edge this year and Hilo joining last year, um, you know, users who are making like getting big wins and making big money and not just kind of lucking into it, but doing it with really sharp process and really sharp roster builds. And so, um, yeah, man, it's, it's been, it's fun to see, I kind of catch all the names in, in passing I'm sitting here on discord and looking at, uh, at Josh Reezy below, below us talking. And like Josh has been on the site for years and like now he writes edge bets and um, you know, you've been on here and I kind of know everybody's names, but to be able to kind of connect with you and, and talk about this huge win is so much fun for me as well. And so, uh, yeah, man, congrats on that. And anything you want to add before you get out of here? No, I mean, I just want to take another chance to say thank you um, for the site and and the family feel. I love the podcast the other week where your daughter was interrupting you. I, you know, I can I can empathize with with um, with those situations. And then to the people who are, you know, who are, I was the person sitting there saying, "Gosh, I've lost, you know, every week so far. Uh, when is this going to turn around?" Um, just keep building smart lineups and 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 don't give in to kind of the the reality that it's really difficult to win a tournament. Um, I love I love that I love that. Um, thanks so much for for hopping on here. It's really cool to be able to chat with you about this. I wanted to break down your roster, and so I'm glad you were able to um, hop on and kind of and join in on that and share your thoughts because I think that's so valuable. 
to the community. So I'm going to talk about a few more things, you guys. It'll probably take about 30 minutes or so, uh, maybe 20 minutes, and then we'll get to questions. And then um, if we have time, we'll get to some live questions at the end. Um, so one of the things that Matt was saying, and I think is really important is, and I, and I kind of alluded to this a moment ago, uh, you can lose a bunch, right? That's kind of the point of DFS. And I think that there's a misconception among DFS players, probably from the marketing and the way that it's talked about. And I think that one of the reasons it's talked about on some other sites, the way it's talked about, where it kind of makes you feel like if you're not winning, you're doing something wrong, is because they're not really training you on how to play. And so in order to keep you around, they have to create that constant FOMO that's like, oh, well, everybody's winning except me. I must be doing something wrong. If I stick around, I'll I'll get the big win. Whereas we focus so much on training and helping you understand DFS theory and how to play DFS that it's easier for us to also say, look, you're going to lose a lot if you're playing correctly. It's what I've, I've talked about Cubs fans saying, you know, rosters that are either all the way to the left or all the way to the right. You know, rosters that either win or or either have a shot at first place or can like totally bust and be in the bottom 10% of the field. And if you keep kind of getting rosters right in the middle or right on the cut line, then you have to start uh, assessing your play a little bit more deeply. Now there's a lot to talk about there, right? Like I had a roster that finished one point out of the money in the game changer and the juke that was, um, well, actually, that roster really wasn't different enough. Um, it was, I had Debo Samuel on it, had Michael Carter on it, but it was a Jalen Hurts and Dallas Goddard stack, which I ended up unfortunately moving to instead of my Wentz Taylor Pittman stack because I found a way to get uh, Pittman and AJ Brown onto my Teddy Bridgewater Sutton McLaurin stack. But also, that Bridgewater Sutton McLaurin stack with AJ Brown and Pittman with Michael Carter, that one finished one point into the money or two points into the money. And so, that's the kind of roster that we say, Hey, if you keep getting those, you got to assess your play. Well, I can assess that play and say, okay, I had Bridgewater Sutton and McLaurin. I had Michael Carter. I clearly wasn't playing scared on that roster. I was playing with a roster that gave myself a shot at first place. So then you answer it, you assess it, and you kind of keep moving along that track. But the importance of being able to say, look, I'm going to build in such a way that I will lose quite a bit. Or like I said, a minute ago, you know, a few years back, it was like, man, without take away these 15, 18 slates, whatever it was, I've lost money in DFS. And then you realize, oh, but that's kind of what DFS is. Another thing that is important to talk about is mindset. I've, I've talked about really once a year, at least oh, since 2014, I've had dedicated like a week to talking about confidence in your DFS play that ties into the whole fearless roster building thing. But we had a, a Scott Barrett and I had a really long conversation about that today where he was kind of kind of talking about his confidence being shot. And then we talked about this whole thing about how important confidence is and how to get it back and all that. Um, it's maybe the first 20 minutes of the DFS recap pod. And I think about 10 minutes of it is uh, the first 10 minutes is Scott kind of going through where he's at. And so maybe from like the 10 minute mark to the 20 minute mark or so is a really interesting listen on us kind of talking about that, discussing that. And so I would recommend that when that comes out on the Fantasy Points podcast feed on Wednesday. But just to touch on that really briefly, if your mindset is that, oh, like I can't wait to see what's going to happen this week to break my roster. I can't wait to see what's going to happen this week for me to lose. You're going to be building with that kind of mindset 
Whereas I've used this example in the past, but that week when I had that game changer win last year on Thanksgiving, it was the only game changer I played last year uh, and ended up taking down first place on Thanksgiving. It was this crazy week where Thanksgiving is already the biggest content week of the year for us. And then I was traveling and had the kids and then my in-laws uh, internet was down. And so I had to get a hotel room. Some of you might remember that. And I was driving back and forth from this hotel 20 minutes away every day to do all my work. And it would have been easy to say like, oh my God, this week sucks. This week is killing me. But instead, every time I just have vivid memories of every time I was in the car driving to the hotel, just like repeating out loud, I'm elite. I, I do an excellent job handling this week, knocking out great content, great DFS play. And having that mindset allowed me to put together a really great week of content and piece together a really great week with family. But also then by the time I got to building rosters, that was my mindset. It was like, man, I'm killing this week. Let's go ahead and kill this roster as well. Let's go ahead and try to take down first place in the game changer here as well. And if my mindset had instead been like, oh my God, this week sucks. It's it's wearing me down, right? Well, then by the time I'm building rosters, that's my mindset. And it really is important when you are in a sport like DFS, where you're literally trying to position yourself to be wrong often enough to get a first place finish to have that mindset where you're like, man, I'm killing it. Like I'm building really good rosters and I'm building in a, in a good manner. So speaking about building really good rosters and building in a good manner, uh, my, my dad occasionally checks my Twitter feed. And so this morning he was like, Oh, this is pretty cool. This guy who had this 250 K win, uh, he said, that's enough to hold you over for a while. And, um, so then he was kind of, you know, he occasionally asks questions about DFS. And so he was asking just kind of about strategy stuff. And I was talking to him about the idea of betting on a game environment and getting multiple spots right at once. And so I was explaining to him, you know, one of the unique things that I said, one of the unique things that Matt did on this roster was Carson Wentz plus Jonathan Taylor, plus Michael Pittman. Of course, my was uh, player names from the Patriots and then like AFC East team. So I said, you know, uh, and other elite, elite players. So I said, you know, the Colts quarterback and number one wide receiver and running back all on the same roster. And most people don't think of that as being correlated, but it's this ability to say, look, I'm going to bet on uh, this offense being relatively concentrated and putting up points. And so let me just get the points. And if there's points coming back from the other side, I know that the Colts are good at stopping the run. They should be able to slow down Derrick Henry. AJ Brown would have to be putting up points in order for this stack to work. And if you get that one thing right, you're getting four spots right on your roster at once. And my dad said, and I'm just going to kind of talk through this because it's an interesting way to approach this conversation and rephrase some of the things that we talk about on OWS and specifically in Inner Circle. My dad said, well, so it sounds like one of the most important things is just to get the game environment right. If, if you get the game that kind of puts up the most points. And so I said, yeah, well, you know, it's a little more complicated, but the, the thing I always say is, and again, uh, this is, I talked to the top of this about the diamond, right? So I'm going to kind of try to define these things at the end of the diamond where we can, where we can say, here's everything that we talk about in a confined little form. So I said to my dad, well, you know, upside comes from volume, big plays and touchdowns. And so Games where there are a, and a team that's going to score four or five touchdowns versus a team that's going to score two or three, you're much likelier to get a two touchdown game from a player betting on the game where the offense could score four or five touchdowns. Uh, but 
Also, volume's important. And so an offense is going to score four or five touchdowns and you know where the touches are going, that helps you quite a bit as well because you can kind of concentrate your bet. So something that Knowles fan has made a living off of is playing smaller field, high dollar tournaments and just taking high confidence plays. That was one of the things that I focused on this last week was like, where can I get, you know, obviously there was the, the Bridgewater McLaurin Sutton, which doesn't sound like high confidence, but if McLaurin has a big game, it unlocks all three of those pieces. And I had Judy on the other roster as well. So I'm kind of unlocking four roster spots at once with this one bet. Uh, high confidence plays. Michael Carter, most people wouldn't have thought of that, of, of that as a high confidence play, but we were looking at it saying, well, we know that targets are worth a lot more than carries. We know that the Bengals have forced the first or second most targets to running backs in the NFL. We know that Mike White has shown this propensity to check down in his one start we've seen him in. So let's say that we can pretty easily bank on at least six or seven targets from Michael Carter with upside for double digit targets. That's pretty high confidence for a guy who's only 400. And so the, yeah. So I said to my dad, not just game environment, but um, you know, the, also the volume, like the concentrated distribution of touches is really important. And, and then I said, you know, the other thing is Levitan and, and Ray Bond and the other guys have done all this great research about what over time, what is the most, what, where does the most production come from, right? Like home favorite running backs, high total games. And so because of that, people don't really have the nuance to sort through that themselves. So what they often end up doing is just taking highest total game and building around that. They don't think through the fact that, okay, the Chiefs always have a high total game. So Kelsey and Hill are priced up for that. So the Chiefs being in a game where 55 points are scored doesn't really make Kelsey and Hill a must play. It doesn't make Mahomes a must play. This, this has to be a game where 80 points are scored. It has to go above their normal expectations. So that's one thing to look at. Another thing to look at is most people know to look at the high total games. So Larejo has talked about this a lot recently, but those that game that's 51, that other game that's 52, everybody's thinking about that. That other game that's 49, 48, 48 and a half, people just aren't thinking about that game. So also finding those high total games where people aren't on them or finding those games that maybe isn't a super high total, but you know it can go well above that total and the players are priced for that expected type of total. So those are other things to think about. And then the other thing I, I said was, you know, you got to still get the individual plays right. You got to nail the game environment. It's been interesting because the last few weeks I've had some of these, what I call wasted weeks, right? I had Michael Carter on both my rosters and he was only 5% owned the week that Kadarius Tony was 42 or 4,500 and put up like 39 points. I had him on four of my six rosters uh, and he was completely unowned under 5% owned. Um, and on these weeks where I've kind of nailed my floating plays, but missed on the game environment, which is such a disappointing thing because you're like, well, I'd sure like to benefit from getting these floating plays right. But again, getting the floating, getting everything right is important. So getting the floating plays right is important. Part of that is thinking through games yourself. So Matt talked about it, thinking through things at the front of the week jotting down his own initial thoughts. I've talked about this several times recently. Use a notebook to write down your thoughts or use your phone notes to write down your thoughts or use the notes at the bottom of each game in the NFL Edge, which is what Matt does. Tracking your thoughts throughout the week is extremely important. Thinking through the games yourself is extremely important. That's why we went through my bubble building process last week. It's why we're going to go through it again next week. It's extremely valuable stuff to understand 
how to think through games yourself and how to kind of get a sense of the slate on your own so you have your own thoughts. So when you can kind of do that, and then the last piece that I was talking to my dad about is recognizing how chalk is built. And so it's one thing where Chris Godwin, we can look at that objectively and say, Reports came out that Gronk was going to be used situationally. We know you can't run against the Saints. We know that Antonio Brown's out. We know that Mike Evans has a pretty large sample size track record of getting dominated by Marshawn Lattimore. So what's the likeliest thing to happen here? Chris Godwin puts up points. You could, you could say the same thing about DeAndre Swift, right? Like sometimes these situations Fail. I ended up rostering Swift and not rostering Godwin, basically saying, well, I don't want to roster both. And so I'll put my money in the Swift bucket instead of the Godwin bucket. But both of them were super sharp buckets to have your money in. And that's sharp chalk. But chalk forms no matter what. That's so important to understand. And so where does chalk form? I talked about this ad nod over the years, but most of the big DFS voices like let's take Roto Grinders, for example. Most of the guys who are providing content on Roto Grinders, they also play NBA every day. During MLB season, they play MLB every day. So up through the end of September, they're playing MLB. They're probably playing MLB playoff DFS. By mid-October, they're playing NBA. And then they're writing NFL content. Do you think that they're doing NFL edge level research themselves? Of course not. They are listening to voices that they trust, echoing the same thoughts, and then using DFS theory to build good rosters themselves. So when those voices, when we know who those voices are, hint, hint, those voices by and large are Levitan and Silva. When we know who those voices are, we know where chalk gets built from. And so we also understand that Silva's main focus historically, has been on season-long fantasy. Obviously, he breaks down the the week-to-week matchups, but historically, it's on season-long fantasy. And so he's looking at macro, like what are who are the players who are going to perform best over the sample size of the entire season? Levitan is one of the sharpest cash game players to ever enter DFS. So he's looking at who are the sharpest plays for this week, cash game lens. But Levitan will tell you himself that he thinks Tournaments are dumb. Tournaments are not winnable. I don't know if he's changed his stance on that. And uh, this is nothing against ETR because Dinkmeyer is one of the sharpest tournament players. Leon is one of the sharpest tournament players. But just talking about where chalk is formed. So Levitan is going to do a better job than anyone in the country at figuring out what the sharpest chalk build is, by and large, week to week to week, year after year after year. But what happens is the second or third or fourth wide receiver that Levitan's talking about is going to echo out into the DFS world in a sense to where people will start thinking about it as this sharp play. And so the guy who maybe should be the eighth or 10th most popular player at their position, if somebody weren't talking about them, ends up becoming the second or third most popular player. And the mindset then becomes, well, Everybody's on this player. Everybody's talking about this player. I can't fade this this player. What if this player has a huge game? And it's I know it's a thought that you've had because it's a thought that every DFS player has. What if I fade this player and he has a huge game? Everybody's going to be on this guy. Whereas if we can build differently, if we can have our own thoughts at the front end of the week 
And if we can recognize that if we are building rosters that have a clear shot at first place, rosters that can put up 200 plus points, which A, go hand in hand, right? 200 plus points to get to first place, but then B, saying, well, I've already had my own thoughts and now I'm piecing things together in such a way that, oh, I can look at this and say, this is unique. This is different from what other people are doing without being dumb. Another thing to think about, those of you who listened to Xanamir and Hilo this last week, and Xanamir uh, said it really well, that a lot of people think that tournament wins come from finding that 1% owned play that nobody's on. But more often, tournament wins come from playing combined plays that other people aren't playing. So that can be Jonathan Taylor plus Carson Wentz plus Michael Pittman. Michael Pittman was over 20% owned in most tournaments this last week. Even Pitt, even Taylor was over 10% owned and Wentz wasn't that unpopular. But how many people, now Pittman plus AJ Brown, people had that. That was probably on, I don't know, 10% of rosters. So you get that, well, you're still competing against 10% of the field, which in a 5,000 entry tournament, that's still 500 people you have to beat in order to get to first place where most of the money is. But how many of those people also had wins? Well, now you're probably competing against 150 people. And then how many of those people added Taylor to that roster? Now you're probably competing against 25 30 people. Maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's 50 people or whatever it might be. But that idea of saying it's not about, and what Xander Ray Hilo talked about last week was how many people are going to pay up at both running back spots? Not nearly as many as are going to build their rosters this other way. And so recognizing that you can play good plays with sound DFS strategy, sound roster construction, and you're probably more often than not doing something very different from the field and giving yourself a much better shot at first place. You're giving yourself fewer people to have to compete against to where if this stack, if this full-on Colts build plus AJ Brown ends up being the sharpest stack of the week, well, now you've got four roster spots covered and in such a way that it's much lower ownership than those individual plays. So you're now set apart from the field and giving yourself a clear shot at first place. And so understanding how chalk is built allows us to let go of some of that fear where we say, oh my gosh, everybody's on this guy. What if he has a big game? Well, if it's Chris Godwin, that's fair to say, everybody's on this guy. What if he has a big game? Am I doing enough to beat that roster? You can you can think like that. Now, I love what Matt said about with, with DeAndre Swift, like, well, I was already going, I already felt like this roster could score 200 plus points. With the Jonathan Taylor play, it was like, well, he's in the same price range as DeAndre Swift, and I'm, this is part of my stack, right? So this is priority one. Swift would be priority two. And then also being able to say, well, I actually personally felt that Eckler was a sharper play than DeAndre Swift. And being able and willing to say that, which comes from being able to build your own thoughts at the front end of the week and establish those before you start exposing yourself to all the other voices, all the noise that's out there. and so recognizing how the chalk is built allows us to kind of sort through things and say for ourselves, what should be chalk and what shouldn't be chalk. It was like I said last week when I found out that Dan Arnold was going to be popular. It was like, well, Dan Arnold was the type of play that if I hadn't found him, that back in the day, I would have shown up on the Friday podcast with Levitan and Hefe, and they would have brought up Arnold and said he was going to be chalky. And I would have been like, really? I haven't thought about him. Like, that's interesting, right? Everybody's on this guy. Whereas when I came across him myself at the front end of the week, it was like, oh, here's a sneaky play that people probably won't be on. And so if you can kind of identify like what chalk is sharp chalk and what chalk, what chalk is just chalk because 
chalk is going to form no matter what, that can allow you on that second wide receiver, that third wide receiver, that second running back, third, fourth, fifth running back, whatever it might be, to let go of that fear and say, okay, yes, this play could put up a big score, but not as often as the field thinks. How am I confident in saying that? Because I've already thought through all these games inside and out, and I, I know that this play wasn't standing out to me from my viewpoint of this game and my breakdown of this slate as a whole. And so it was an interesting conversation with my dad that kind of ties in with Matt's win because it, it takes these, I basically had this conversation with him where I was trying to take everything that I've learned about DFS over seven, eight years and kind of condense it down to this fine point of like, well, what is the optimal way to play? So again, as Matt said, it was playing for first place. It was playing toward 200 plus points. It was playing fearlessly. And uh, as I was saying, it's betting on games. It's thinking through, well, it's betting on games in such a way that you're thinking about total points, right? Where upside comes from, volume, big plays and touchdowns, concentrated distribution of touches where you can bet on the touchdowns coming through these guys if the touchdowns get scored. Uh, there are deeper things there. Obviously, we've talked about those all the time. And then the floating plays, being able to understand who you think are the sharpest plays through your own viewpoint and being confident in that. And then also understanding how chalk is built so that you can let go of that fear to where it's like, well, sure, this is chalky, but that doesn't mean that it should be chalky. It doesn't mean that it would be chalky if certain people hadn't talked about it. It's not always Levitan and Silva, but that's just a good place to start in your understanding of things. And, and I don't ever look to see who they're talking about, right? I'm just saying, understand that chalk often forms, not because this is clearly the sharpest play, but because chalk is going to form sort of no matter what. And so then that allows you to understand, okay, well, is Godwin sharp chalk? Because I can talk through the reasons why this is clearly one of the best point per dollar wide receiver plays. DeAndre Swift, even though he didn't hit, is sharp chalk because I can talk through the reasons why this is clearly one of the best point per dollar running back plays. But here's this other chalk. Okay, I'm not scared to miss out on this one because it just seems that this is forming because chalk has to form. Uh, and so with all of that, that kind of allows us to put these, these three pieces together, playing for first place, building for 200 plus points, and playing fearlessly. So with that, I was going to talk a little bit more about my rosters from this last weekend, but I'd love to get to questions. So with that, I am going to close out my segment. We will be talking about uh, bubble building again next week. So I, what I would do is I would encourage each of you to on Monday before you listen to Inner Circle, just Monday night, spend an hour going through. And if, if you what through in your own process, go through the slate in your own process. If you want to follow the process that I use, you can go back and listen. If you're an inner circle member, you can go back on the inner circle podcast feed and listen to the week eight inner circle Tuesday inner circle segment where I walk through my, my bubble building process. Um, it's whatever the first 40 minutes or so of that podcast, throw it on 1.5 X speed and knock it out in whatever that is, 25 minutes or so. Um, and then I would encourage you to do that next week, right? Get a sense of what you think about the slate. And then next Tuesday, you'll be able to do the same thing we did last week. Open up your phone and I'm going to go through the slate and then talk through what I'm seeing and how I put that together myself to kind of get my baseline thoughts. As we saw last week, Things changed throughout the week. There were some of my initial thoughts that changed, and a lot of them became more deeply solidified. Um, and so we'll be, we'll be able to do that next week. It's an extremely important exercise and can kind of put you guys in position to start doing that yourself moving forward 
as we saw from Matt, that's one of the most valuable things you can do because then you have your baseline thoughts and you can start to build confidence in your baseline thoughts or kind of start taking away pieces from your baseline thoughts based on what you're finding throughout the week um, and, and you know have more confidence in what you're building based on what you were seeing. So with that, we will wrap up this portion of Inner Circle. Aaron, welcome on board. What do we have for questions tonight? Yeah, we have uh, a few questions that are in the uh, JM Live Tuesday, 7 p.m. Eastern channel. Not the best name, but it gets the point across. Um, but I wanted to, I know we got a lot of new members in here tonight. One of my favorite things about why we do this on Discord is because of the live atmosphere and to bring people up on stage to have that, you know, direct community communication. You know, Matt coming on earlier was awesome. Um, so hearing from the OWS fam, uh, I encourage you, if you're open to public speaking, raise your hand and you come on stage and ask JM a question. Um, but for now, I will uh, go through the questions we have in the chat. And if you don't feel comfortable jumping on stage, drop it in the chat and we'll get it asked here because we uh, usually go for another 30 minutes or so. And uh, yeah, so I'm going to get to the runner man 400 question here. And Jan, this goes back to uh, the flash drafts you did. So you might, um, uh, I'll let you fill it in from there. So I tried out the flash drafts on DK last night for the fourth quarter. I had no shares of Ingram as he had only played half the snaps and zero targets so far. Obviously, without him anywhere, I didn't cash. Do you chalk that up to variance, or should we always do at least one roster with a total low, total lower owned variance play? Okay, so um, flash drafts really quickly for any of you who haven't heard me talk about them, and and most of you have, so I'll condense this. But flash drafts, you draft in the third quarter for the fourth quarter. And you go through five screens and each screen gives you three players to choose from. And so basically it might be like, let's just use an example, like Evan Ingram times three. So it would be like three times his fourth quarter score. And then the next option might be Devontae Booker times two. And then the next option might be Tyreek Hill. And as soon as you, as soon as you've got like 10 seconds and as soon as you select your player, uh, or as soon as everybody selects your player, the time's up, it shows you the ownership percentage on that. So most people, you can look at that screen and know that most people are going to take Tyreek Hill or they're going to take whatever the highest multiplier is. So actually, we should have said in that example, Devontae Booker times three, Evan Ingram times two, because we're saying Evan Ingram low owned. Um, and basically, the idea is... You don't want to build to cash. It's good to not cash. It's good to go through a quarter in which you didn't cash. The idea is to build in such a way that you get first place. So should you have, and why I love the flash drafts and why I talk about them is it's incredible training for DFS play. You get to see in real time what it's like to force yourself to take a lesser play. What it's like to force yourself to say, okay, I'm going to think strategy first, or I shouldn't say a lesser play, but it, because in like a large slate, we don't want to take on the lesser play, but the smaller and smaller and smaller slate we get to, the more willing we have to be to take on the lesser play, recognizing that if this play is, I'll put it like this, who's a better play this last week, DeAndre Swift or Joe Mixon? Well, DeAndre Swift in a vacuum, but if we say, 
that Joe Mixon's 10% owned and DeAndre Swift is 50% owned. Does DeAndre Swift outscore Mixon five times out of six? And so that's kind of the question in these flash drafts is recognizing that people, it's what we're talking about a minute ago, people congregate on chalk. People flock to the perceived certainty. So what you need to recognize about the flash drafts, and this is, I, I dive into this because playing the flash drafts makes you so much better as a DFS player because you get to practice things that relate directly to large slate DFS, and that is outmaneuvering the field. So if everybody, as you build a handful of flash drafts, you start seeing how chalky some of the pieces are. And so each screen, what you're thinking about is, okay, how much sharper is this piece? How chalky do I think it's going to be? And then let me take that. And so every flash draft across those five screens, at some point, you have to take a play that you think other people won't be on and that you can make a case for it scoring more points in that quarter. So you talked about, in this question, uh, Runner Man talked about the, like Ingram only playing 50% of the snaps and so on and so forth. That's kind of the point, right? People aren't going to take him. He's going to be optimal. He's going to be lower owned because he's playing fewer of the snaps. Now, there are times where you go through these flash drafts and plays that are suboptimal are getting drafted at a higher level than you're expecting. So I don't have all the context for this question, right? But let's say that Evan Ingram was being drafted on 25% of rosters. Well, then it's sharp to not take him because you can say, look, this guy never runs routes more than three or four yards downfield, and he's only playing a portion of the snaps. Why would I take this guy at heavy ownership if he has a big fourth quarter? And that's another great thing with the flash drafts. In a single quarter, scoring is so random. So people flock toward what they think of as certainty, but a touchdown, right? Somebody has to get two catches for 40 yards just to match, or three catches for 40 yards, right? Just to match the guy who gets one catch for one yard and a touchdown. And so touchdowns are so random as far as who gets them, who's, what team scores them in a quarter, that thinking about, okay, let's embrace the randomness here. Everybody else is going here, let's embrace the randomness. Kickers, people don't like taking the kickers when it's like this kicker versus this running back and this wide receiver. Well, how easy is it for a kicker to kick a 42-yard field goal and get, what is that, four points, or a kicker to kick a 50-yard field goal and get five points? Well, is a running back without a touchdown going to score five points in a quarter? Not unless he has a big pass catching role. Is a wide receiver going to score five points in a quarter? Maybe, but a lot of wide receivers, even Deontay Johnson, even Debo Samuel. Debo Samuel had like two catches for 26 yards at halftime on Sunday, even though he finished, maybe I don't have those numbers exactly right, but even though he finished with 170 yards or whatever it was, I should know that because he was on one of my two rosters this last week, but even though he had this huge game, right? It's random. It's not all going to come out across all the quarters. And so it's just as likely that this wide receiver gets one target and zero points as it is that he gets eight or nine points. And so you take kicker and you get five points, or maybe he kicks a 50-yarder and a 40-yarder, and you pick up nine points and at low ownership. So there is certainly an, a, a, an element of play in playing the flash drafts. There has to be at some point 
where you find a player that that is super low owned. And if it's on screen two out of five and you take a guy thinking, okay, this is my low owned guy. Oftentimes I would try to get two low owned guys, uh, but it's more important to correlate, right? If I, if I take Robert Woods and then Stafford's on the next screen, I want Stafford. So I get double those points. If I take Robert Woods on screen one, I want to take Robert Woods again on screen four. So that if I'm right on Robert Woods, I get all those points. Um, but the, the correlation is important, but the most important thing is doing something that just separates you from the field. So if you're on screen two and you take a guy who you think is going to be low owned and you're wrong, he ends up being 30% owned. Then you have to take a shot again on the next page and say, okay, maybe this is the guy or, or on page four. And I've had flash drafts where I go page one, two, three, four. And it's like, man, there's just like, it would be so suboptimal to take the guy I think will be low owned. And then you get to screen five and it's like, well, it's still suboptimal to take whatever guy here is going to be low owned, and you just have to kind of take them and just hope for the best there. But yeah, if 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 somebody like Ingram is going high owned, then you just say, well, I can. It's sharper to just not take him. If he's going low owned, who cares if he's only playing fifty percent of the snaps? If that's what's chasing everybody off, then you try to take that guy. But also, one quarter of football, the kind of the point of the flash drafts is that scoring is so random within one quarter. And the people you're competing against don't treat it that way. So because scoring is so random within one quarter, one quarter is way too small of a sample size to draw conclusions about your own play and think like, oh man, I messed up in the way I played it. And you shouldn't think about it in terms of cashing versus not cashing. The fact that you didn't cash might've been better. might've meant that you were playing better because you're supposed to be playing for first place. You're supposed to be playing with a roster that has things that are different enough that can jump you over everybody so that you're not getting a shared first place finish, but you're getting a solo first place finish. So what I've talked about is I played, you know, I've only played like 20 quarters of last drafts, but it'd be like a quarter where I lose 20 bucks, a quarter where I lose 20 bucks, a quarter where I lose 15 bucks, and then a quarter where I win 120 and then a quarter where I lose 20 bucks or 30 bucks and then a quarter where where I win 300 and that should be kind of the pattern in those is lose 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 win big because that means you're playing it correctly and I go through all of that because I want you guys to feel equipped to play the flash drafts because playing them again best time to play them Thursday night football Sunday night football Monday night football and they're right there in the DraftKings lobby and you draft during the first quarter for the second quarter during the second quarter for the third quarter uh, I want you guys to feel equipped to play those because playing them can sharpen your main slate play so much because you just start to see really quickly how you have to make decisions that are based more on strategy than on your perception of what you can predict, uh, especially within the context of only one quarter. So that was a longer answer than um, probably we should have done with the time, but um, super interesting to get to and, and super valuable if any of you are playing those and getting better as DFS players through playing those. All right, we have and Mag fifty four up on stage. Uh, and Mag, go ahead. Hello, hello. Testing one, two, three. Can you guys hear me fine? You sound great. Welcome. Okay, cool. Thank you, thank you. Well, I appreciate you, uh, allowing me the stage. Um, super big fan. Been part of part of this since the very beginning, and and love the hustle and love what it's become. But uh, I'll get to my question, which is: I just finished my first statistics class. So the words variance and um, Z-score and, and T-score and those things, um, you know, make more sense to me now. And I was just curious on, um, because we see a lot of projections, you know, when we see a lot of the, in the game notes, there's a lot of talk of, well, this player scores X amount of points this many times. And the likelihood of him hitting this score is X percent, whatever. 
Um, so now that I'm more aware of those things, how my question is, how much, assuming you know a player projects to hit a certain number or, or be on the field a certain percentage, right? You know, not just, oh, well, the Detroit Lions are going to be losing by a bunch, so we know that DeAndre Swift is just going to get hit with a bunch of, you know, uh, dink and dunks. How much do you, you know, assuming we know the outcome or, or what the, you know, based on a football sense, how much do you allow projections to play into your, um, uh, in, in how you pick players versus a gut feeling, right? And the example um, that I would say is, for example, uh, uh, Mike Evans was, uh, uh, there's a huge, excuse me, there is a huge, uh, what's the word? That Marshawn Lattimore, you know, shadowing Mike Evans uh, just has crushed him throughout the years, right? So so how much is that knowing a football sense versus knowing Mike Evans can project X amount? Because he would end up having an outlier game. I think he had 12 to 15 points or something, right? So, so question is, in short, how much are we allowing how we feel about the outcome of the game? Uh, numerically versus that football sense slash gut feeling. So I love that question. And one of the things that I want to hit on first here is something I talk about often, which is that every DF, every, everybody's mind works differently, right? So you can say Z score and T score, and that's white noise to me. If you say Z score and T score to Hilo, that's probably like firing wires in his brain with all sorts of thoughts. And so everybody has to kind of look at things through the lens of like what helps them build the sharpest rosters. For me, I don't, and, and, and you've been around long enough that you, you know this, but I don't rely on projections basically at all. And one of the reasons is because there's certain things that projections can't account for. So I would, I would imagine that Mike Evans last week projected higher than the way that the field was actually viewing him. And there's also players like when you have too small of a sample size. So some of the uh, kind of big plays that we've been able to hit on, where whether it was Kadarius Tony earlier this year, Deontay Johnson last year, or Michael Carter this last week, where a projection system isn't going to be able to account for the situation the way that we can. Um, but also, you know, the understanding that it, on the one hand, past production doesn't guarantee future production, but it can give us some clues as to how this matchup might play out. So my biggest edge personally is being able to think through each game and thinking how each team is going to try to win that game and what that means for DFS production as a result. And so we kind of dove into that. Obviously, the, the result of the game ended up being different than we expected as far as total points. But we we touched on that in last week's segment with, this, with the 49ers and Bears, where I kind of jumped over that game because it was a little bit more knotted up than some of the other games, and then had to come back to it and say, okay, how will each of these teams attempt to win this game? And what does that mean for production in this individual game? So the best thing is when we can find a spot where we can say, like the Jonas Gray week in 2014, where he was 2% owned and put up whatever he ended up putting up, 200 yards and three touchdowns. And uh, that was a player that I wrote up in my Roto-Grinders article that week, where it was just like, okay, the way that the Patriots will try to attack this Colts defense is the Colts defense is 
susceptible to runs up the middle to big backs. Jonas Gray had never had, I believe it was never more than seven punches in a game up to that point. And then, you know, write him up as like, hey, here's a sharp play this week. I was still a single entry player at the time and kind of pulled back from pulling the trigger on that play, but was getting tweets throughout the day and texts throughout the day that day like, man, Jonas Gray is making me all this money because we weren't looking at a projection of past data and and all these things blended together but instead being able to say hey how is this team likely to try to win this game okay Jonas Gray how are the Steelers using Deontay Johnson how are the Giants using Kadarius Tony how are the Jets likely to use Michael Carter and so we can see those things but yeah I think that there's a blend and part of it is finding your sharpest angle and I think that for like for you like taking a statistics class and understanding these things and your mind working that way it's being able to blend an understanding of like what is robust in a projection system and what is fragile in a projection system, what is robust in the field's thinking and what is fragile in the field's thinking or going back to what we were talking about with where chalk is formed, what is the robust chalk and what is the fragile chalk and kind of thinking through those elements can help you quite a bit. Um, I don't know. Do you have anything else on, on that or does that kind of cover that for you? love the answer i just it, it sparked my curiosity just because i i took the class for the very first time and, and and it just made more sense but i've always been that gut football like you as you've mentioned there's the people who think they know football play dfs and get crushed and then there's those who think they who don't know football and and play it because they're statistical geniuses and and crush it you know whatever so i do find that blend and i think that answer was awesome i love the robust versus fragile example you used and i think that was spectacular and this is why i'm such a huge fan that was awesome thank you thanks man i appreciate it and that's and that's actually going back to what i was talking about earlier another thing i was talking to my dad about this morning was just saying you know understanding with all these things right what are the robust high total games what are the fragile high total games what are the robust what's the robust chalk what's the fragile chalk and so on and so forth and the more we can identify those things bales always talks about building anti-fragile rosters the more we can identify those things right like bales builds rosters when he plays dfs bales builds rosters that are very different from what the other people he against are building in whatever tournament he's in and yet they're still anti-fragile rosters they're rosters that make a lot of sense they're rosters that hey if this one thing goes right i'm getting all these spots right on my roster and so on and so forth so um yeah, another thing that's extremely important to keep in mind, and I really like, especially as we're getting to this kind of midpoint in the season, I like that we're pulling closer to the end of the diamond, right? To this, the finer points of how we can define these things that we want to be keeping in mind as we build, because that makes it a lot more actionable. Uh, with that, we've got G Negro 612 up, uh, old friend of the pod. How's it going, man? Hey, JM, how you doing? I am doing well. Couldn't be doing better. All right, so here's what I got. So I actually had a similar lineup to Matthew where I had the Colts overstack A.J. Brown in a correlated lineup of Mixon, Michael Carter, and the Cincy defense. My flex was Sutton, and I was debating a swap to Godwin after seeing where I was as I was in the top 20 in every GPP I was in this week, and I chose Sutton. So, uh one, do you have experience on tips of getting over a decision that costs you a lot of money? As I've been kind of frustrated the last 48 hours because I lost about 26K instead of, I had a solid week. I won like a thousand, but like that could have been a really huge week. 
So um, my other question was, uh, was my thought process correct to stay on Sutton if I thought Sutton gave me a better chance at first place due to the ownership gap? Is this this the second one that you've had that's kind of like this? Um, The first one, I think, was a brown stack. It was just that I was a little too – I didn't have enough solid players. I was kind of really – I thought I had more chalk on this lineup, but turns out some of these players were actually more. uh, So you had all these guys going. um, Yeah. I mean, so the first thing I want to say is you're building like extraordinarily sharp builds and that literally means it's a matter of time until something hits. Um, it's one thing to hear that, though, and then it's another thing to see it happen, right? And so I understand that. I'll talk about two of mine. Um, I, and I've had a few. So I had a my I before I ever won a qualifier, I had a, a Nolan Arenado home run that was called a double on the field. Uh, a ground rule double on the field. The ump missed it, and because it ended the game anyway, it was bottom of the ninth game was in Coors Field. Because it ended the game anyway, they didn't send it to review because they didn't need to. Um, it was a double, and there was a guy on second base, a ground rule double, a guy on second base. It won the game for the Rockies, but if it had been a home run, which it was, then I would have taken down that qualifier. Um, and I was in kind of a enough of a groove on that one with like, it was MLB, so you could play daily, and I was winning enough that it, it kind of like rolled off my back pretty quickly. But then there was one where I'd been struggling in DFS for a little while, and this was summer of 2016, I think it was, and I it was coming off the All-Star break, and I put in all this extra time on my roster for the 1K buy-in tournament. I was going to go you know, one entry on this big 1K buy-in tournament that was 100K to first place, and And I put in all this time, like the entire all-star break, working through this roster. And we had a a wedding of a family friend the night of of that that first game back from the all-star break. And I set my roster right before we left. And then in the car, I changed my roster. And ended up being the difference between 1K in profit and $100,000 in profit. And for like two weeks, I just couldn't get over it. And... Over time, what I kind of learned was the big picture view to be able to say, as long as I keep building the way I'm building, I'm going to have some big hits. And the big picture view to say, so many like so many little things have to go right in order to get that first place finish, right? Would, would you have had the first place finish w- with Godwin on that roster? Yeah, I'd have scored about 217 that I took down most tournaments. I okay. took down two of the three tournaments I was in and then second place. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really hard. Like, it's a, it's a, it's it's one of the reasons why, like, a team like the Patriots, for example, preaches mental toughness so much is because, like, really bad things are going to happen sometimes. And there has to be that level of, like, turning the page um, I think that there's kind of, I'll say it like this, there's almost like a mourning process, like a grieving process. And you have to kind of give yourself over to that fully 
And then once, once that's done with, then it's like, okay, I got to turn the page. And I don't think that just like saying, okay, I'm going to force myself to turn the page. Cause if you just say, I'm going to force myself to turn the page, what ends up happening is you just feel like you're covering up that loss and you just keep, I guess what happened to me in that, that one that like bothered me for weeks, maybe it was even months is you just keep thinking back to it because you never actually spent time with it. And so basically it's like, give yourself time to be like, man, that sucked. Like, how unfortunate, how unlucky is that? And kind of settle down with that and be like, well, man, that sucks. Like, and, and it's okay to admit that it's okay to like be frustrated about that and like give yourself over to those emotions. You've got a picture with your little girl in your, in your avatar, right? So maybe you've seen the movie inside out the Pixar movie. And there's the part where Bing Bong is sad because he lost his magic wagon and Joy is just trying to get him like move on with their journey and sadness sits down with him and like is sad with him and then that allows him to move on. What's interesting about that movie is they put in an enormous amount of like study and research into how emotions work and how the brain works and that really is how emotions work and how the brain works and it's it was interesting for me because growing up my mom is very much like a, okay move on move on move on and and I think a lot of parents are like that right and you get in that mindset of like okay well just don't don't dwell on this but sometimes like settling down with it for a little bit and mourning that that loss is the most important thing you can do and that allows you to turn the page and be like, all right, well, like I'm a champion. I've been killing it with my play. I'm going to get a first place finish at some point. As to the actual process, it's it's tough, right? Because I'm not in your shoes to see like what everything looked like. What I would be looking at in a situation like that is how many minutes are left in like the players above me and how many minutes are left in the players below me and how many minutes do I have left and basically try to assess what I think is going to give me, give me the best shot at first place. And I'm assuming you did that and assessed that Sutton gave you the best shot at first place. So really that doesn't make it right or wrong. It just, because we could be having the same conversation and say, I guess I'd look at it like this. What's the likelihood of Godwin outscoring Sutton? Probably 70, 30. We can look it, it. We, some people would think it would be more than that, but we look at those three games last year where Antonio Brown wasn't there or wasn't as much of a factor yet. And Mike Evans got shut down by Lattimore and Chris Godwin did not have a huge game. Chris Godwin was putting up 12, 13, 14 points in those three games against the Saints last year. And we know that Sutton can go for a huge game that other people aren't going to get. So it's really maybe 65, 35, 70, 30. And so then if you say, well, it's more important for me to have this 30% bet that I think can get me to first place then if I think if I have this 70% bet, I'm likelier to finish, like even if it hits, I think I'm likelier to finish like fifth or fourth or third. Well, that's not worth it because all the money's in first place. So I think that like the balls to be able to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with Sutton is, is super commendable. And if you were looking to say, like if you were kind of calculating things and saying, okay, well, this is what I'm going to stick with, then it's a sharp play. Like it didn't work out. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, every every week's different and every week's going to have like those opportunities. Um, I don't know. Do you have anything else on 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 that? No, nah, I'm good. Thank you so much for the answer. It really helps me a lot. Yeah, for real. And and for real, I would I would seriously, seriously recommend like take take tomorrow to just like be bummed about it, you know, or like take 
Thursday off work. Like, you know what I mean? Like not even, not even to say like, oh, well, I've already been bummed about it, but like to li- literally settle down with it and just like deal with it, you know, and, and give yourself time to be upset about it. And then turn the page to literally be like, all right, well, like I'm a good DFS player. I'm a really good DFS player because I keep being in position and maybe I don't get a first place hit this season, but it's going to come because I've, I have proved that I'm a good DFS player and building really good rosters and seeing things sharp that other people aren't seeing. So um, I think that'll help as well because then you get that confidence back to be like, all right, maybe it's not this week. Maybe it's not week nine. Maybe it's not week 10. Maybe it's not week 11, but it's going to come. That big win's going to come or we're going to have you up here talking about that big win at some point because you're building consistently sharp rosters. And, and so I think that's important too. Um, Aaron, we got any, any other written questions before we close things out? Yeah, I I love that movie Inside Out. I love how you um, reference that and, and related to DFS. Only uh, at OWS <laughs> will you hear that. Um, I've probably watched all that right, movie this one's 15, from... 15 times. Yeah, no, I I know all about it. I love it's one of the best Pixar's that they got out there. So, um, this one's from the franchise. What considerations should be made for building lineup? Uh, for should be made building for Wildcat versus Power Sweep. It looks like the higher score of the two oscillates back and forth. Then no considerations. And I think this goes back to what Mike talked about the or earlier in the season where he broke down. I don't remember specifically if it was the power. It was definitely the power sweep, but I don't remember specifically if it was the wildcat or a different tournament. But basically he broke down the like average winning score wasn't nearly as different as you would expect. Actually, I think it was the slant, which is, you know, $9 entry, 150 max. So I would have said in the past that in the wildcat, you have to account for the fact that it's 150 max. What Mike basically uncovered is not that you build for the power sweep the same way you build for the wildcat. In other words, not to say that, oh, well, even when it's only three max, you still have to build as if other people can build 150. But in other words, to say, you got to build for first place no matter what. And I think that as you get into the power sweep that's three max, people tend, tend to be a little safer in their builds. But what when Mike kind of broke that down, I'm like, hey, these 150 max contests with like 10K entries are really not that different in terms of like winning score than these three max contests with 5K entries uh, or these single entry contests even with, with 5K entries. And so that helps you to recognize that 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 element, those those elements are the same kind of regardless of contest you're in. Now, the place where it changes is when you're in those 500 entry and below contests. So the way that I was building really actually the the two rosters I rolled out this last week in the Juke and the Game Changer which are both uh, under 300 entries. The those rosters actually would have been totally viable in the Power Sweep or the Wildcat as well. But there's a willingness to take on a little bit more certainty in those ones to where like uh Matt had Deontay Johnson in the Power Sweep and finished second place and if he hadn't built his other roster he would have finished first place with the Deontay Johnson one um but me when I put Deontay Johnson on my roster I thought okay well I don't know if I could pull the trigger on this if I were playing the Power Sweep which is 5k entries because I'm like Matt said we're mostly rostering Deontay Johnson just for the locked in points he actually had one of his worst games in this role uh that he's had but the which was still 15 points but the uh it, playing in these you know, 280 entry 
contest, I was able to say, okay, well, I feel comfortable putting Deontay on this roster that also has Michael Carter and also has Debo because I'm getting the upside. I'm getting the low ownership. Uh, I don't think Deontay is going to be owned. And I feel like I'm locking in a good 20 to 26, 27 points. It's not quite the salary multiplier I'm going for. It's not quite the 30 plus point upside, but just those guaranteed points are pretty good. But as Matt showed, you can also win the power sweep with that type of player. And so, yeah, the, the main thing is just recognizing that the core tenets of building for first place, building for 200 plus points, building fearlessly are kind of the same, no matter what contest you're in and whether you're trying to beat 5,000 entries and it's three entry max, or you're trying to beat 5,000 entries and it's 150 entry max, you still have to build the same way because you still have to get the same type of score in order to get first place. Because ultimately, you know, we always say it's not about maximizing points, it's about maximizing paths to first place. But you still need to be able to score 200 plus points almost any week in order to get a first place finish. And so that kind of remains the same as far as the risks you're taking on, the types of players you're targeting, because the tighter salary gets, the more willing you have to be to kind of do things that you might feel a little bit uncomfortable with in order to get that uh, huge score, in order to get that first place. This week was actually kind of nice because Michael Carter was uncomfortable, but you could justify it really well. Dan Arnold was only 2,800, opened up a lot, or Jamal Agnew was the guy I used on my other roster. Um, shout out to Larejo for that one. Actually, I came across Agnew um, when I was building the bottom-up build and, and couldn't fit him in on those rosters because uh, I needed 500 more to get up from Nico Collins. But um but yeah, the the those plays kind of unlocked some things this last week to make it a little bit easier. But the the closer we get to the end of the season and and salaries tighter, the more willing you have to be to take on a little bit of uncertainty. You have to do that really in any tournament. With that, we are going to call it a night. Um, as always, it's it's a blast hanging out with you guys on here. Super honored to be able to do this with you guys. For any of you who are listening for the first time, thank you so much for being here. Hopefully you found this instructive and learned some stuff, even if you don't stick around in Inner Circle for the rest of the year. If you're still listening and are not in Inner Circle, go to the missions page on the uh, OWS menu and you can find the rest of season discount. Highly recommended. Obviously, you get this segment, the Saturday segment, which is strategy prepping for the slate and you get the Oracle in the scroll each weekend. With that, I will see you guys back here next week. I will see you on the site throughout the week, and I will see you at the top of the leaderboards this weekend.